and welcome to the sermon podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale. I'm Reverend Nick Merchant. This is the second in a three-part series entitled Counterintuitive Jesus. If you'd like, you can go back and listen to last week's first, or go right on ahead and listen to this one. In last week's text, Jesus engaged the squabbling disciples, saying, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus does not condemn their desire to be first. He redefines the way there. How do Jesus' words affect your worldview? Do you allow the Word of God to redefine how you interact with the world? Or do you leave it right where it is, closing yourself off to its life-giving qualities because it is hard, challenging, and downright uncomfortable sometimes? I get it. I'm thankful for your willingness to wrestle with or to chew on these difficult texts with me. I'd encourage you to have a look at Mark 9, 38 through 50 in preparation for listening. Jesus, in just a handful of verses, teaches on who can do exorcisms, how to stay out of hell, or more accurately, Gehenna, a rubbish heap outside of Jerusalem where children were once sacrificed, and what it means to be salty disciples. We've got a lot of chewing to do. Over these last couple of months, and particularly as we've launched this new ministry year, you've heard us talking about these 30 core competencies. And these 30 core competencies are are broken into three categories of 10 each. Knowledge, practice, and virtues. In other words, what we know about God What we know about Jesus, what we know about what God is doing here shapes what we do, what our practices are. And those in turn form who we are and whether or not we are reflecting God's image here on earth. Practically speaking, it, it gives us this, this rubric, this, this roadmap in our spiritual formation. It, it begins to set some harder edges on, on what can otherwise be an abstraction. Now, it all begins with our Christian knowledge As we talked about last week, the greatest resource that we have about who God is, about who Jesus is, about what God has been doing with God's people, it's right here. It's this book. It's this collection of ancient texts written in three other languages from more than 2,000 years ago in a place more than 6,000 miles away. And I say that not to say we should be afraid of it, but we need to acknowledge that when approaching this rich gift. And as we begin to unpack it, we need to be willing to wrestle with hard words, with teachings that 
you know what, we don't understand when we lift them right off of the page because they were written in a different cultural context. Last week I said we need to be willing to chew on them. As the medieval commentators would say, we need to chew on the scripture until like a spice, like a grain of spice, it releases its full flavor. We don't just read it once. We turn it over. We wrestle. We push. We pull with it. And so we're going to continue to do that this week because in it, in today's text, Jesus says some hard things. Jesus says some things that will change the way we view the world around us, the way that we interact with one another as Christians, and how we define our role here in this community. It will change what we know, influence what we do, and thus what we become. But before we dig into this specific text, I want to give some, a framework to think about how this passage in Mark chapter 9 might have come together in its present form. Do we still have photo albums? Do, do those still exist? Now, I, I'm not talking about like the Shutterfly albums that, that maybe your friends are making now and they go on a trip and they take all the digital pictures and they, they click the ones they want and then Shutterfly makes a book and it's all pretty and it shows up at your front door. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the old school photo albums, those big three ring binders with the hard cardboard pages with that like staticky plastic wrap that comes off of the page and then you carefully place all the pictures and close it up. You know what I'm talking about. At my parents' house back home, there are shelves of these three ring binders. And there's a shelf dedicated to to family trips and vacations that they have taken. And then Lance, my brother, and Elizabeth and I, we each have our own sections chronicling our lives. It's Nick, 1981 to 1984. 1985 to 1989. And some pretty horrible hairdos in there to go along with those phases. And for some reason, somehow, it became the family tradition that whenever Nick brought home a girlfriend from college, all of the photo albums ended out on the table. <laughs> and, and, you know, the way the photo albums are set up, it's, it's sort of chronicling your year that year. And we kind of started at the beginning of the school year, maybe the first day of school. And then there was something about Halloween and me in a terrible costume. And then on to Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then interjected in there are maybe some athletic photos or some events going on at school, a birthday, and you come to the end of the year in summertime, and you start the cycle again. And as you look at it, particularly with these events fresh in your mind, you would go, you know, I think mom got that one out of order. The picture was accurate. The picture was perfect, capturing that moment, but but, but where it fell... Maybe it wasn't exactly within the narrative of the way that year went. What we have here in the Gospels are are a collection of snapshots, of pictures, of sayings of Jesus, of, of things that Jesus and his followers did that were pieced together by the early church, by the early evangelists, by John and Mark and Luke and Matthew, to try and convey a picture, to teach who Jesus was and what Jesus has done and what we as disciples were called to do. 
But it wasn't meant to be this perfect storyline from beginning to end. And so sometimes we come across these pieces that, that feel a little funny next to one another. It's like a, a picture of Thanksgiving next to a picture of me playing baseball. The pictures of Jesus aren't inaccurate, but sometimes, together with the previous passage, it looks a little funny. And in today's text, we have this interesting uh, kind of combination or collections of sayings of Jesus, and they're actually collected rather by uh, event. They are collected by theme, these catchphrases. In fact, this was a technique in ancient writings where you would, you would collect phrases or sayings that shared a similar theme to help us to learn. We, would, we could then memorize these by rote easier if they were together. And so you have this first collection of sayings that, that is all these things that Jesus says to do in his name. And then there are these teachings about stumbling and being thrown into hell and fire. And then there are these collections of sayings about salt. And so we find ourselves right where we left off last week in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning focuses on a couple of aspects of discipleship and informs us of what we can expect as we seek to be followers of Jesus Christ. First, our text instructs us that, that we are not to be solo disciples. And secondly, it informs us that discipleship will come at a cost. Now, the fact that we are not called to be solo disciples is perhaps the most difficult truth that this scripture teaches us this morning in light of our current cultural context where individualism reigns supreme, particularly here in North America. Pew Research did a study. 73% of Americans believe 
that their status in life is a direct result of the work that they do. In other words, how you end up is a direct result of your actions. And we would nod along and say, well, yeah, of course. Good hard work. The problem is, is that this drives us further apart. That's not to say that hard work is a good thing. But we have, over generations, become so focused on the work of one that we forget how our actions affect one another. Amy and I were in New York a couple of years ago on our honeymoon, and we jumped into a taxi cab, and the taxi cab began driving us around Manhattan in ways that I am not used to riding around. (laughs) To say that he was aggressive would have been an understatement, but he was not troubled by this at all. In fact, he was very comfortable driving like this and telling me about it while he drove. And he said, he said, look, the city of Manhattan is set up in a grid system. We need to drive like this. We have to be aggressive. When it's green, you need to go. When you have the right of way, you don't wait. Because what I do here will affect cars three blocks from me. When we make a mistake here, it has effects all across the grid. We, we have begun to believe that our actions don't matter as long as they're not hurting anybody else. That's sort of the, the, the paradigm, right? That's our, our, our big rubric. But that's not the case. What we do matters, period. But I'm preaching to the choir when I talk about not being solo disciples because you're here. You're here in church. You've bought into the idea that maybe we need to be a community of faith. So let me ask you this. How as the church are we cutting ourselves off from the rest of the body? Our text this morning opens up with this passage where John says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now questions like this would have been commonplace amidst most movements of religious renewal within the ancient Near East. You see, this is how they viewed themselves. These disciples that were following Jesus, their teacher, they understood themselves as holding to a superior ethical standard. They figured their type of Jewishness was the right type of Jewishness. Do you believe that your Christianity is the right form of Christianity? How do we today fall into these same traps? On September 19th, the Sun Sentinel ran in this article. Uh, You may have seen it. I, I posted it and shared it on Facebook. Reporting on this lunch that we put on for the teachers over at Fort Lauderdale High School. And it was a, it was a collective effort that, that we did with uh, three other churches here in the community, with Rio Vista Community Church, First Baptist, and Celebration Church. Now, it's interesting to me that this was newsworthy because churches don't do this. In my 10 years of ministry here at First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale, this is the second time that 
I have been involved with a ministry another church has been doing in 10 years of ministry in Fort Lauderdale. Shame on me. So why is it that we, that we cut ourselves off? What should feel like natural and easy working with other Christians just isn't. So what are the barriers? And why do we put them up? In our text today, Jesus says, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. This week, as we were preparing some different media pieces for worship, whether it was the bulletin or the epistle, the sermon sneak peek, I found myself typing the sermon title again and again. And every time, every time, I typed in whoever, what did I do? (laughs) Now I can't do it right. I said, whoever is not for us is against us. That's the saying we know. If you're not just like me, you must be against me. And Jesus says just the opposite of that here. He said, if you're not against me, then you are for us. So our text today is clear that that we are not to be solo disciples, but it's also clear that our discipleship is going to come at a cost. I want to look again at verses 42 through 48 because I think we get lost in all of the talk about hell. Jesus says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. There's some shock value in here, and I think there's a tendency for us to get lost in this hell narrative. I think for many of us, it triggers a certain view of what that must be like or what they're talking about. And I, I find that for, for many, it makes us either far too uncomfortable or we're far too excited about it. So let's talk about what Jesus is saying here 2,000 years ago to a people more than 6,000 miles away and not the way that you hear that word. And it's helpful for us to go and look back at, at the book of 2 Kings. Last week, we, we talked a little bit about why and how these disciples would have been very familiar with Old Testament scripture. So I want to read just this one verse talking about King Josiah. In the book of 2 Kings, he says, He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Moloch. So what does that have to do with our text today? Well, the Old Testament would have been written in Hebrew. In Hebrew, Valley of Ben-Hinnom, when translated, excuse me, transliterated into Greek, the language of our New Testament, would have been transliterated Gehenna, which is exactly the word that gets translated into hell in English. This Valley of Ben-Hinnom, this Gehenna, was a place where children were once sacrificed. 
In Jesus' present day, it was also the city dump. It was a valley in Jerusalem. And so Jesus says to his disciples, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to end up in that place where they used to sacrifice kids and is now the city dump. He doesn't say and describe and fill in your descriptor for what hell means to you. And so rather than getting bent out of shape and thinking about this eternal place of fire and damnation, I want us to focus on what Jesus calls us to do instead. And he says, cut off your hand, tear out your eye, chop off your foot. Using a rhetorical technique, using hyperbole, Jesus is saying there are things that you have that were created good. Your hand, your feet, your eye. But if they're causing you to stray, then you need to depart from them. You need to get rid of it. So what are those things in your life that God has created good that are not working for good in you? Perhaps it's a relationship. God has gifted us with relationships. We just talked about the fact that that we were created to be disciples together, but perhaps there's a relationship that is poisonous in your life that you need to cut off, that you need to separate yourself from. Maybe it's an unhealthy work environment. Maybe there's a job that you need to let go of, not because work is evil, but because in your life, this work is working out evil. Does that make sense? Swimmers shave their legs. Did you know this? I found that out when I swam in high school. He said, do what? And they do that because it increases your speed. However, synchronized swimmers don't shave their legs because they have found that practice unhelpful. What they have found is that the hairs on your legs when moving through the water in tandem with others actually helps with spatial awareness. What is helpful in one context is unhelpful in another. What are those things in your life that are no longer helpful in your Christian practice? Because I believe that we're called to join in this thing that God is doing here. We're called to join together here in this church to hold each other accountable, to be disciples, to become disciples of Christ. Because greater things have yet to come in this city. But when we look at the big picture, I believe that it can be overwhelming. Wendell Berry, who is a beautiful author. I mean, he's all right looking, but his words are beautiful. You know what I mean? (laughs) In his essay entitled Word and Flesh, he is writing about what we need to do in order to um, help to fix the environmental crisis. Right? And so he's saying, here's what we need to do to save the planet. He says, our understandable wish to preserve the planet must somehow be reduced to the scale of our competence, right? to, to our own personal understanding. That is, uh, to the wish to preserve all of its humble households and neighborhoods. When it comes to caring for our environment, it's not that we need to save the world. We need to save our neighborhoods. We need to save the place where we are, where God has placed us. When it comes to bringing the kingdom of God to earth, it's not about doing that to the earth. It's about doing it on your street, 
It's about doing it in your church, in your city, in your neighborhoods. In verse 41, Jesus says this. He says, for truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. We are called to be in relationship with one another, to love one another, to participate in what God is doing here, bringing the kingdom of God to earth by bringing one cup of water to a thirsty person at a time. In our church, on your streets, in your neighborhood. What does that look like? Because when we begin to understand what it is that God is calling us to do, we begin to practice. We begin to do these things, these tangible things that will bring the kingdom of God alive and here, and then we will become reflections of God's grace, of hope available in Jesus Christ, of the very image of God right here in Fort Lauderdale. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, we give you thanks for providing us with a a tool to understand who you are, to understand what it is that we're supposed to do so that we can become who you've created us to be. Father, as we leave this place today, help us to connect with just one more piece. Help us to understand the next step that we each need to take in our walk of discipleship, in a life of discipleship, where we are becoming more and more like you. Gracious God, we love you and give you thanks for the gift of your son in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.